0: Welcome to the free to choose media podcast. Today's podcast is titled how scientists and non-scientists look at science. 1996 Nobel prize winner in physics, Dr. Douglas Osheroff and science writer, David Salisbury discuss the different views scientists and non-scientists have about science. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the free to choose media podcast.
1: It seems to me that when it comes to the public perception of science, there's first-order science and second-order science. First-order science is science that that I would say impacts mankind very directly. An example would be medical science, um, biological science, maybe environmental science, although I think that's still an open question. Second-order science is science where, you know, one doesn't know what the applications are, if there will be any. Real
0: basic science.
1: Yeah, well, it's what's basic science, uh, but I, I guess an example is is uh, when buckyballs were first discovered. I suppose mm-hmm. people would have asked the question, "What's it good for?"
0: Yeah, or like when the laser was first discovered, it was a light source in 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 search of an application or something. Wasn't like that said
1: said mm-hmm. about it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And now look, I mean, lasers are just everywhere. Of course, part of it's. Uh, Uh, The diode lasers, I think, have really changed that a lot. But, you know, the question is, where does it go from, when does it go from being science to being engineering?
0: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I've always thought about science having two different kinds of impacts Mm -hmm. on the public. One of them is a more practical impact, Mm -hmm. like like medical research um or some e- engineering applications like the 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 uh, just the host of uh applications from the microprocessor and all that but there's another kind of application which i think it, over the long run is even more important and that's when uh science has a, it, it, it's it's more of a philosophical impact it's when for instance there's a change in our understanding of the uh origin of the spe our, our origin uh the origin of the human species say like uh the theory of evolution or uh theories about the uh uh origin and the nature of the universe leading to either optimism or pessimism about whether or not we're the only intelligent life in the you know in the milky way and so forth and uh you know, I think that that those kinds of of, of developments are the ones that re- that have the have the greatest impact overall. Uh, whereas the the practical applications, you know, have 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 uh, benefit too, but it's a, it's of a whole whole different order of magnitude.
1: So I, I suppose what you're saying is man's place in the universe, or something like that. I mean, it, it's a, a a cultural value, and you, and you put that higher than than any economic value, I suppose. In
0: my mind, yeah, I I think I think those those things that that really affect our understanding of ourselves and our place in the in the universe have profound effects throughout our whole whole culture, as effect as as contrasted to. Say a new, improved cure for cancer, which will certainly affect uh, a certain number number of people profoundly, but won't have a uh, have a ripple effect through throughout all of, all of uh, all all of society.
1: It's interesting. I, I can't remember what the organization was that, that asked me to rank. Uh, I suppose what was a hundred most uh, important people in the last millennium and their contributions Mm -hmm. and i just assumed that i would be putting people that had been involved in in political struggles up near the top wars or whatever Mm -hmm. and for me it 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 was very interesting because i found that that invariably the people i put at the top were the people that had had really given mankind knowledge of of the universe that that he lives in Uh, they were largely scientists (laughs) oh i agree i
0: think uh you know the 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 real value of science and and, and sort of what makes it uh, different from other all other avenues of, uh, of of human thought is is the idea uh, of building in a, a self-correcting kind of uh, a mechanism where um, you're you're not saying that. You know, we've we've discovered the truth for all time, but you know, you have the generation of hypothesis, and then the idea that these need to be tested and and uh, are uh, you
1: know subject to to continual challenge. Yeah. So I mean, once you have something and you've tested it, even if it's not the ultimate truth, it you you know that in fact it works very well in some. Range I mean, examples: New- Newton's laws. We know that they're not the end all and be all, but boy, they work well for for us on Earth. Uh, we don't have to worry about Einstein very much usually, uh, and and they'll always be good. Uh, the laws of physics don't seem to change. Yeah, you know,
0: I think one of the problems we have with the public perception of all this is the fact that that people don't really understand the basic process of. Uh, of scientific research um, in the media what what tends to be covered are the the outcomes you know the latest breakthroughs in x y and z and very little is really uh, the public is given very very little information about the process the false starts the, the serendipity mm-hmm. the you know ninety nine percent perspiration one percent inspiration mm-hmm. aspect of <laughs> Of the scientific endeavor, and also the, the fact that it's really a community process, you know, where where uh, individuals make certain discoveries, but they're so independent, interdependent on on the thinking and the advances that large numbers of people have made, and as a as a result, their ability to to really assess the value of science. Uh, Is
1: extremely limited Yeah, that's I think that's right to the point Uh, People I think the Nobel Prize unfortunately tends tends to to uh, enforce that view of science that 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 somehow things just pop out and that it's, it's not this community that that is essential if you go back and look at almost any Major discovery uh, it was not an individual or even a small group of individuals, but it was a whole community of scientists were involved i mean I, I guess an early example would have been Camles who discovered superconductivity, but you asked why was it that he was looking at at the uh, electrical properties of, of, of mercury at very low temperatures, and it was because people had predicted what might Happen. Now, it turns out that none of the things that people had predicted ended up being the case. Uh, superconductivity came as a bolt out of the blue. But uh, the reason he was looking was, in fact, that there were do- those predictions. And I mean, Cameron Leonis actually developed the technology that allowed him to get down to those low temperatures. But he borrowed, in fact, the idea of the Dewar flask, which was developed by his arch rival Dewar in this whole race to. to, to uh, Liquefy all of the the inert gases, so I mean that's just a simple example. But very seldom does does one say that I'm going to go somewhere where no one has been before and discover something big. And if you do, and you try to get funding for it, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, I, I've heard it. Uh, some people say that uh,
0: they're they're concerned that the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. Committee is going to have real trouble in the future awarding Nobel Prizes in high-energy physics because the people who are making these discoveries today are teams with, with 200, 300, mm-hmm. 400 people, and the Nobel Prize rules, you know, uh, limit the number of, uh, of recipients, you know, to three for any, any given award.
1: Well, that's, of course, the, the size of the groups have grown, but only by factors of two to four, I think that's been true for a while, and typically what happens is the leaders of those groups tend to get the prizes. The thing that, that I think is important, and the public perception is very different from mine, that is that, that for serendipitous, serendipitous discoveries, or, or I think discoveries of, of any sort, uh, that the Nobel Prize celebrates the discovery. And, and I think rewarding the, the discoverer is, is or should be a, a, a second-order effect. Uh, but I mean, as it works out, the discoverer, or the person that gets the prize anyway, is ends up uh, being anointed and is somehow the the single focus of of media attention and public attention in general. I mean, I can't blame the media for that one. I mean, the, the number of invitations that I've gotten to to give uh, uh, scientific lectures or public lectures, whatever, has has grown by an enormous factor since getting the Nobel Prize. But hasn't, hasn't that really come from
0: the scientific community itself, in a sense, where the, the, the basic reward that, that, that scientists are seeking and why they're competing to be the first to make a given discovery is so that they get the recognition as being sort of the discoverer, and that's part of the, the psychic reward uh that they get and the reward as part of the the community uh, is being the first to have 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 made a new discovery so in a sense the Nobel prizes ha- have just um, uh, taken that that same uh, same basic uh, uh, reward system and uh, elevated it to a uh, uh, a national and a, you know an international level.
1: I suppose that's true. I mean, I, scientists are outside of their science are certainly not very different from from anyone else, and and I find my myself uh, uh, exhibiting a lot of the behavior that I complain about in, in the public at large. So I, 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 there's no question that that's true. Uh, scientists. It's interesting. Uh, most people that I know that have gone into physics anyway. Uh, Go into physics because they enjoy doing it. They don't go into physics because they expect to uh, produce tremendous benefits for mankind, or or even make a lot of money. They're, they they go into physics because they're very good at it, and it's it's perhaps an ego trip in being the best at it. And so there's a tr- it's a tremendously competitive thing. I mean, I suppose it's. Really not very different from a lot of other fields uh, lawyers like to win the best cases they like to get the best cases and and there I think you know there was this this uh, series on television which I resulted from a movie paper chase where right. there was this fellow at Harvard that was you know to teach this uh, year of first year law students to t- think like lawyers and mm-hmm. i I suppose that one could do that i don 't know if one can do that in a year but uh, I think Lawyers think like lawyers and physicists think like physicists. And I think scientists in general think rather differently. But but the motivations are frequently the same. It's fame and fortune and, and uh, I think it's competing with your peers and winning. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a very competitive life that, that we lead. When I was at Caltech as an undergraduate, you had to choose a physics... Well, you had to choose a major uh, in your sophomore year and you had to meet with someone from that discipline. and. This was when Richard Feynman was teaching his lectures, famous lectures, and so must have been two thirds of my class showed up uh, to talk with a physics representative. And he looked around and said, My God, surely not all of you guys are going to go into physics. (laughs) And he said, It's very hard, uh, but even if, and and if you're not near the top of your class, which I wasn't, he said, uh, uh, Forget it. But if you are, be prepared to work very hard for the rest of your life, because there's always someone out there that's, that's a little bit smarter than you are or willing to work a little bit harder than you are. Yeah, I remember a conversation
0: I had with uh, with uh, Bob Schriefer, um, who was telling me that uh, that his son, he thought, had all the qualifications to be, be a physicist, but instead uh, he he decided to become a lawyer because and he told his father that he thought it was because it was much more it, it was much easier to make money, money as a lawyer than as a
1: scientist <laughs> <laughs> that's true well there's no doubt about that i think the thing that that really drives uh, physics now or at least experimental physics uh, and experimental science in general i think is the costs are, are very high. Uh, so regardless of how much the, the scientists themselves are getting paid, uh, the, the experiments that they're doing require equipment and, and uh, resources, which, which are uh, large on any scale. Uh, maybe not large on comparison to the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the total profits in the NBA or something like that. Entertainment aside, though. Uh, it, it's a lot of money, and so uh, if if you're going to get the the research contract or grant, to uh, you have to have demonstrated a lot. It's very competitive, and there's no other way for
0: that. And certainly, uh, uh, once the the cost of doing research rises mm-hmm. to a certain level, then politics inevitably becomes mm-hmm. involved, as in with the as with the super.
1: Uh, uh, Superconducting Super Collider. Su- yeah. SSC, yeah. yeah SSC. That's a really good example, and I think that's the place to get back to this issue of, of the, the of, uh, public and, and media treatment of science in general, I think. Because at the time that the SSC was, was being proposed and, and uh, the development was going on, uh, was the same time that NASA was proposing the, the permanently manned space station. And uh looking at those two now now of course i I'm not sure what the, the ultimate number was but but I think the NASA uh, every time Congress complained that the SSC was well, I mean, that the space station was costing too much money, NASA did clever things to make the price look like it was going down bring in international partners, which is always a good thing and uh, uh, but but then they were I think literally able to hide a lot of the costs so and now we learned that that thing's going to probably cost in excess of $60 billion. and It doesn't seem like anyone's caring about it. I mean, the time to bring that out is when there's a, uh, a uh, scandal in Washington, I suppose, that all the media center on that. But but what happened instead with the SSC was, in fact, that the price seemed to be going up. Uh, the scientists were not very good at, at, at getting uh, international partners. They did, but it was late, and, and it Probably wasn't as dramatic as, as what was happening uh, with the the space station so and and the scientific community wasn't uh totally united that this was something that that we needed uh, i i mean it's one of these things that that I don't think that one really knows what one could have done with that facility of course a lot of it's going to be done now with a facility at CERn uh, but that's that's really a lower energy. And, it, and I think the, the, that entire scientific community is looking at where they're going next. Uh, it, but so ultimately the SSC was cancelled and, and the space station continues, but the SSC was a tiny amount of money. Uh, th- those of us, there was an argument within the scientific community as to what the proper uh, attitude was toward the press or, or, or uh, what one should say, I was of the impression all along that if that money uh, was liberated, it wouldn't go back into science, and I think that's exactly what happened
0: Yes, I'd say that uh, um, we've we've seen recently these major fluctuations in attitude towards um, funding levels for for science in 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 congress and in the political world. Uh, uh, where a few years ago it looked like it, was, it would inevitably be uh, dropping, but now it seems to have reversed itself, and and uh, it looks like there will be some some gain. But uh, um, I think that it's it's clear from if you follow the the political uh, debates on all this that there, although there's broad support for public uh, uh, for funding of of science by the government, that uh, that support is 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 very thin, uh, and uh, it it only takes a little thing, uh, a little bit to 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 shake it as as with the uh, uh, SSC, where uh, the 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 growing costs plus uh, allegations of some significant mismanagement, I think were. Uh, uh, were enough to uh, to, ca- to, 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 to cause the, uh, politi- uh, the political forces to turn against the project. And again, I think that uh, goes back to the level of, um, the very low level of, of scientific literacy on the part of the public as a, as a whole.
1: Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, I think back... Well, in my field, which is really physics and, I suppose, uh, hard natural sciences in general, uh, the, the reason for funding uh, basic research uh, for many years was the Cold War. And now we don't have a Cold War. And uh, I mean, I, I th- in a sense, the Cold War was good for science in this country. I think there's no question.
0: Well, I think you know, many people looked at it as a cheap insurance policy to make sure that there no surprises would come out of of the soviet laboratories
1: yeah well we had to make sure that, that we were making the same discoveries that they were making i suppose mm-hmm. yeah i mean uh whereas if you look at what's happened in the biological sciences the nih budget has been been growing rather steadily and and i think it's it's probably because of things like aids and cancer and uh i mean we see those as, as the real threats now we don't we don't see the I mean, the Soviets, uh, Russia still has uh, massive numbers of, of uh, nuclear arms, but they don't seem to be much of a threat anymore.
0: Well, they're no longer targeted at us, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, it's, it's true, I think, that again, going back to this, the, the underlying pragmatic philosophy of, uh, that in, the, in the U.S., that it's certainly much easier to make the pragmatic argument of of uh direct or fairly direct benefits from uh from bio, biotechnology and and biomedicine mm-hmm. or research in biomedicine and it's it's harder to make uh those kinds of arguments in in uh, some in, in areas like uh uh low damage physics say okay.
1: <laughs> You, you cut to the quick, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, a good example I like, I like to bring up regarding this issue of support for basic science in, in, in natural sciences, post-biological sciences, is uh, the discovery of buckyballs. I think it's, it still remains to be seen what economic value, if any, buckyballs will have. But, but uh, of course, I think the big issue is not buckyballs so much, but these, these carbon nanotubes. If one can make these things long, they they appear to have tremendous strength and carbon. Well, hell, we, we don't want it in our atmosphere. Let, let's maybe we can wear it or something like that. <laughs> so so I think there's a good possibility. But if you go back and look at where that research started, uh, and mm-hmm. that's the thing that that we really don't end up doing nowadays very much. Uh, people, I think the first person I knew of was Walter Knight at at, at uh, UC Berkeley who decided to start looking at the properties of clusters of atoms, of just a few atoms. And a lot of the techniques were developed over there. But very quickly, uh, people all over the country started doing this sort of thing. I, I was the head of the low-temperature lab at, at Bell, AT&T Bell Laboratories at that time, now Lucid Technologies Bell Laboratories. That that uh, But in fact, within the low-temperature department, there was, in fact, uh, one person that was was doing a cluster beams set of experiments, mm-hmm. and so everyone wanted to find out how you went from the properties of atoms, which are clearly quantum mechanical in nature, to the properties of of bulk material, which is still strongly influenced by quantum mechanics, but has a a different set of properties that that we think we understand better, and more classical physics problem uh, yeah. properties. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and and Dick Smalley and and, and Robert Curl at at uh, uh, Rice were doing these sorts of experiments, uh, and they I have to say that chemists tend to build fancier apparatuses than physicists do. So he had a really really nice piece of apparatus, but they weren't looking at carbon. It was it was actually uh, uh, Harold Croto, who's an astrophysicist, that that. Uh, Approached uh, uh, Dick Spaulding and said, "Look, I see evidence for, you know, long carbon chains in in, in gas clouds in outer space. Uh, you, you know, why don't you see if you can make these things uh, using carbon in your apparatus? Mm-hmm. And boy, it didn't take long for them to determine de- to find the, the they never found these long yeah. uh, filamentary uh, uh, strings of, of carbon atoms that that uh, Harold Croto had had." Discovered in space, but in fact, or thinks he discovered anyway. But but uh, they found uh, bucky balls and then carbon nanotubes. So you don't know where it's going to go. No,
0: I've I've thought uh, that a good analogy for basic research is is oil exploration. And in, in, in oil exploration, uh, they'll drill uh, ten or twenty dry holes. Before they hit a real gusher, you know, but that gusher pays, more than pays, for all the dry holes. And uh, that's one of the things I don't think a lot of the public understands is that, you know, you have to be looking in a number of different directions, exploring in a number of different directions, and then only a certain number of those uh, discoveries. May come back and have a significant positive economic impact on on society in the future, but uh, but, it, but but those those rare discoveries have such a tremendous payoff that it that it makes it worthwhile for supporting a lot, the the whole the whole field of of, of endeavor and um there's a a school of uh, economists now who are trying to to study how uh, how basic research impacts economy the the national economies over a long period of time and it's a difficult thing to study because the economy has all so, so many different variations and cycles and so forth but you know up to recently the economists uh, would ignore say uh, improvements of a half a percent or one percent or something per year um, uh, because uh they were small compared to the variation uh but they 're beginning to realize that there is a really cumulative effect if you you know if you if you have these uh uh significant new technologies being introduced. Um, even though each one might have a small effect you know, cumulatively over a period of ten years or twenty years, they can make a tremendous difference in the um, in
1: the health of a, of an economy it 's interesting that they would ignore those one or two percent because business wouldn 't uh, i mean an example is the computer I think early on the computer made rather small marginal increases in productivity but if you're in a competitive business, boy, a few percent means the difference between your your company doing well and going under. Uh, the trouble is that if you look at the economy globally, there's no competitor. That's it, and and so I think it's it's hard to make that comparison because you don't know what to compare it with. I mean, it's like saying, well, okay, we will have an economy with computers and without computers, and, but you you can't do those experiments.
0: No, but you can look and sort of sort of look at at more. Computerized companies, uh, countries, and economies versus uh, less computerized uh,
1: economies. Um, I mean, it seems to me that 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 the research that gets done is is really done at the uh, whatever leisure of, of Congress. I mean, Congress is r- clearly responsible in the end for. Allowing uh, the support of, of basic research in this country,
0: they've become almost the sole patron of the of of, of science.
1: You know, I, I mean, it's sort of amazing. When I was at, I left Cornell in 1972, went to Bell Laboratories, where I stayed for 15 years. There was enormous amount of basic research going on there, uh, and and the reason that was allowed to occur, I think, was that that the basic research. Effort at Bell Labs was supported from license fees paid by the regional operating companies, which were uh, regulated monopolies. Mm-hmm. So it was essentially a tax on those companies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the number of patents that came out of that was absolutely amazing. There, there were a lot of people felt that that when when uh, Judge Green was was breaking up uh, the the Bell system, that that somehow Bell Laboratories should be uh, protected, maybe become a national laboratory. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen, and, and the amount of basic research that goes on at Bell Laboratories now, while there's still some, it's, it's remarkably small compared to what it was. And and I think the people that are still there, I mean, I have very good friends uh, that, that are in management, uh, recognize that, 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 that uh, a company that has to compete on the open market simply can't do uh, the sort of effort in basic research that, that Bell Laboratories was doing before. Yeah I think the problem is the time, time frame.
0: If you take basic research you, know, you, you take you take coming up with a new idea, say for for an interesting new technology, it's something like 20 to 25 years before you know that idea can become how, uh, come to market, and, and and have a major share of whatever market it is, and uh, you know the the our economic system really doesn't allow uh, uh, co- companies to operate on that kind of a kind of a time scale, and that's why we need. There, it, to me, it's it's kind of like an, an incredible, you know, symphony in a way where you're trying to to balance. The, the very most basic research with the more progressively more applied research uh, until you get down to the actual engineering and and you know product design area and these all have to be in the right proportion because if you cut off basic the basic research then the well is going to run dry you know in 10 or 15 years um, but if you have the basic research, but then you don't have the the mechanism for the applied research, then you're not efficiently, you know, taking these new insights uh, about nature and materials and so forth, and then turning them into into products that that have value and and uh, and can benefit. Uh, uh, everybody
1: yeah, I think well, physicists I think the scientific community in general thinks its it's been shown over and over again that that, that uh, as far as society is concerned, uh, contributing supporting basic research has has paid back handsomely over the years and I think every every careful study that that has looked at this issue has concluded that's the case uh, it It pays back society, it doesn't pay back an individual company, of course and and our feeling is that that it should simply be be uh supported on that basis that that statistically uh it you you win i mean as a scientist i i trying to decide what experiments to do i always say well okay every once in a while i'll try something that that will be a like an ace in tennis okay mm-hmm. but but generally speaking you you have to try to get your serves in <laughs> on the first serve <laughs> so those those end up being more more incremental research, things that I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure can happen. But let's get back to this issue of the perception of science because, as we've I think established, almost all of basic research now is supported by the federal government, very little uh, industrial support and, and, and I suppose probably even less private support for, for basic research. Uh, and it, it seems to me that, that the public, by and large, are not well-educated.
0: Oh, I don't know if you've seen any of the uh, scientific literacy literacy studies that have been done, but they find that only something like 7% of the public can answer a few questions like, is an electron bigger than an atom? Uh, Or uh, answer correctly a a more open-ended question like, what is DNA? And so the the number the uh, the amount of amount uh, that people the public the percentage of the public that actually knows enough about um, science to really appreciate it is extremely small.
1: It, it's that it seems to me to be a very dangerous situation because uh, I mean you, you may argue well okay that's okay if if in fact the right people know about science but in fact I would say that. That our uh, our leaders in Congress are uh, probably not significantly better educated. They may know that an electron can't be bigger than an atom, uh, but I think they they probably don't know a lot. Uh, uh, Rush Holt was, was running for uh, Congress uh, from New Jersey, and he's I, I his claim he was elected. His claim was he would be only this the second. Uh, physicist to, to be a member of Congress. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that's going to help a lot. But, uh, well,
0: a couple yeah. of years ago, uh, there was a, a delegation from the House uh, Science mm-hmm. Committee who who uh, came to campus, uh, paid a visit to campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I overheard one of the members after coming from uh, a talk about uh, Gravity Probe B, which is uh, a big project here at Stanford to um, to test Einstein's theory of relativity in space, um, he, uh, this congressman uh, remarked to an aide, well, I don't see why we can't get all these applications without having to do the basic, without, uh, uh, why we can't get all these applications uh, without doing all this basic science stuff. <laughs> so clearly he didn't get it
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, part of it is is I think that that the process of science remains a mystery to most people. I suppose maybe it remains a mystery to a lot of scientists too uh, but I think the other side of it is is that that uh, the uh, exposure of the of the public to 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 scientific concepts tends to be rather small I, one of my favorite examples, I, I was uh, invited to participate in a program, a PBS program, back when I was in New Jersey at Bell Laboratories uh, on cryogenics. This was just one segment of a program. This was sort of a poor man's nature program. Uh, and, and so that amounted to my providing some demonstrations of what happened at low temperatures. And then the moderator of this program, was was interviewing me. And the first question he asked was, so, Dr. Ashraf, what happens at absolute zero? And uh, I did, didn't know that he was going to ask that question. And my answer was, well, it, it depends upon uh, whether the system uh, is, is is free to readjust. But for those systems which remain in thermodynamic equilibrium, they will become perfectly ordered. But the nature of the order can be very exotic, reflecting the specific interactions between the particles and nature of the particles themselves. And in the middle of that And he exponent- rolled his eyes, right? <laughs> he, well, he didn't roll his eyes. He, he said, stop, uh, look, uh, just just tell me that all motion ceases at absolute zero. And so I says, I can't do that because it's not true. There are uh, several kinds of motion which are required by quantum mechanics, and that's that's true at all temperatures. And he looked at me very seriously and he said, we don't mention quantum mechanics on television. So, well, what could I say? I said, look, I have to be honest. So we did the interview, and virtually all of it got cut out, or at least a large fraction of it. And the program aired, and uh, uh, the moderator looked into the television camera, and the first words he said were, at absolute zero, all motion ceases. Now, he knew that it wasn't true, but as far as the American public was concerned, that was... The buzzword—that's what absolute zero was all about—and mm-hmm. no effort to educate them at all. Well,
0: I think if you stop to think, uh, replay what your what your answer to him was, it was probably too technical for him to figure out what to do with. And if there was some other uh, other way that you could have, have phrased that uh, to say that. Uh, you know that that at absolute zero, you know, motion slows down to to this to to, to the uh, smallest amount possible, or I don't know some other way that you could uh, could have uh, phrased it that it would have been correct, but still still simple mm-hmm. enough so so that the members of the public could understand if they didn't know what what thermal equilibrium was, and didn't really know what, say, perfect order is when applied to, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, structure of, of, of a material.
1: Well, well, I was willing to, to work with this yeah. person, but in, I mean, I, I suppose what I should have said is that, that all thermal motion ceases. Mm-hmm. Thermal motion is the random motion mm-hmm. associated with with, uh, with yeah. thermal excitations. There, unfortunately, are random motions that, that are required by quantum mechanics <laughs> as well, so you can't say that all random yeah. motion ceases. Mm-hmm. But,
0: uh, well, you might have been a- actually able to, if this producer was open to it, which doesn't sound he was, to do something like to, to play on this this sort of stereotype or this, this mistaken mm-hmm. idea and, and say something like, well, gen- generally it's, uh, people describe absolute zero as the point where all motion uh, ceases. Actually that's incorrect. <laughs> and you know there are, there are so, certain mm-hmm. motions mm-hmm. which the basic laws of, of physics um, states mm-hmm. you know, must be present even at absolute zero. But that, but but it's certainly true that things are moving awful, you know, slowly when you get to that point, well, or you it, know, something the, like that. Yeah, but,
1: just, but it's not not necessarily true. For no. instance, uh, take take a, a metal. I mean, mm-hmm. something we all you know, uh, copper is an mm-hmm. example. Uh, if one cooled it down to absolute zero, or as close as one could get, within mm-hmm. uh, I think the coldest copper has been cooled is two millionths of a degree above mm-hmm. absolute zero. Uh, and you looked at the motion of the conduction electrons. That is the electrons which right. which carry charge. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Some of them are are going at almost one percent of the velocity of light. So that's mm-hmm. three times ten to the sixth meters per second. Now that's damned high velocity, yeah, and but it's there. All of them, right? What?
0: Damn few of them are doing that.
1: Well, though, right? okay, but 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 in fact, uh, a, a large yeah. fraction of them have velocities which are within the factor of mm-hmm. two of that. Oh, I see. So, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there is a lot, a lot of of. There's motion a lot
0: of motion going on Going there. on, yeah. It's <laughs> it's,
1: it's the thermal. I mean, people when they think about temperature, mm-hmm. they think about gases. Yeah. And uh, and if you look at and in fact, Steve Chu uh, in, in his experiments with laser cooling. The way he measures the temperature is to release the atoms from the trap and look at their velocities, look at how this, this cluster of, of atoms spreads out with time. That's mm-hmm. basically due to these random motions. Uh, but but uh, if you, that system is, is essentially a gas. If you go into a condensed system, uh, then there are other constraints placed, placed on the motions of the particles by physical laws. I suppose we shouldn 't get into this too deeply. part of the problem is is that 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 physics and science in general i think is not very simple and, and we want sound bite we want little bites that that explain things, and there are no very simple explanations
0: yes i I, I remember hearing uh, uh, a person explain that uh, um, that uh, if you look at education in in the arts and humanities, it's basically horizontal uh, in the sense that, you know, if you're, if you learn about French literature, um, it doesn't really have any direct impact if you're, if you're studying some other uh, other subject, uh, so that you can, you can kind of skip around different subjects if you miss something here or there. It doesn't make a difference on your on your ability to learn new things in other areas, but that the uh, education in in science is basically vertical, that that each step uh, builds on, on on what came before, and as a result, if people are missing basic chunks of science education, then it's very difficult for them to make sense of what is built upon that that's that structure and so there's a really a a fundamental uh challenge here in in communication uh and in education uh that it's very difficult to uh explain these um a lot of of of, uh, modern science to the public because they don't have the background of basic mathematics and scientific principles with which to really uh, appreciate it. And uh, the reason uh, they don't is partly because we have a, a system where we, we have people who are teaching science in elementary school who themselves don't understand it very well and oftentimes are afraid of it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like foreign languages, I suppose, in this country. That is to say that, well, I mean, I always like to take Japan as an example because I understand English. And uh, the, the Japanese, I think, by and large, understand English, but but uh, they, they pronounce it very differently than we do because they've learned English from uh, Japanese people who have learned English from Japanese people who have learned English and going back and a long time and and, uh, I was given the following advice when I when I first went to Japan which was try to pronounce your English with a Japanese accent and it really helps it's amazing (laughs) so I mean I I shouldn't pick on the Japanese because I think Mm -hmm. the same is true for almost everyone
0: but I do think learning uh, learning about science is very similar in in many ways to Mm -hmm. learning learning a language you know Mm -hmm. you have to you have to get the grammar you have to you know mm-hmm. you have to get the have the vocabulary or you just can't understand or you can't understand what's going on
1: it's interesting that that I think the National Science Foundation has prepared a, a series of kits to uh, help teachers teach science in grade school and and there are a lot of people and I'm certainly one of them that feels that that not only should one start teaching science in grade mm-hmm. school but Teaching scientific concepts, not just facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example is a, is a kit which is available, which allows students to understand the 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 uh, idea of buoyancy. Why is it that that, uh, for instance, a helium balloon rises? And I, I remember many years ago uh, reading a I think it was a, a, a Mickey Mouse comic book and. Mickey Mouse was in some sort of a, a mine somewhere with a pick and he would chip off bits of this rock and they would then rise up to the roof of the of the tunnel because in fact this rock was impressed impregnated with compressed helium yeah. so the idea that helium had some some uh, i mean it it was anti gravity or something like that uh, and yet You know, I find a significant fraction of the students that come into my class as sophomores at Stanford don't fully understand buoyancy.
0: And these are the creme de la creme.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, but it is a concept which has been shown can be taught to people in grade school. Oh, yeah. And moreover, you know, people say, well, you learn languages more easily when you're young. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I submit that you learn... Physics and science in general more easily when you're young. I mean, you don't have the mathematical background, perhaps, but but concepts such as as buoyancy and and heat and and all of these things. I think if you learn them when you're young, they become second nature to you.
0: Yes, I remember I was did some uh, uh, tutoring when I was at university, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember I had uh, a uh, young uh, woman from. Uh, from uh, Malaysia, I was trying to tutor her in in chemistry, and she was she was uh, uh, she was very bright, um, and uh, and she would do a lot of things sort of by mathematical analogies to the to the problems mm-hmm. that were presented, but after working with her for a while, I realized that one of her Fundamental problems was that she had no intuition for the atomic nature, you know, of matter. Um, evidently, she had never really been taught about atoms and electrons, you know, the Bohr atom and mm-hmm. all that stuff. When when she was a she was a girl, um, um, so. Uh, so the whole thing was totally foreign to her and and uh she had pretty good mathematics so the the best she could do was was make these uh, hmm. sort of uh uh mathematical uh parallels you know between between the the the, the problems uh, the examples that were given in the text and and then then the the problem hmm. sets and so i worked really hard with her to try and explain you know give her a sense of uh, uh, atomic structure and what it meant and uh we finally got her through the the class with the passing grade but i but I wasn't uh, at all confident that it it really <laughs> made a lasting impression uh,
1: I think you know this is an example people will uh take a series of facts uh or concepts that they don't understand and try to make sense out of them and uh if they're in a sense, I think if if they're really smart, they may be able to make sense without really having the proper explanation. It's probably harder for those people to unlearn uh, the concepts that they've developed themselves and accept mm-hmm. something which is new. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I must say that as a scientist, I'm confronted on almost a daily basis with things that I really don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, the mark of a, a good scientist is, is someone who, in fact, has, I don't know, I, I like to call it physical intuition, but mm-hmm. if you have good enough whatever physical intuition is, you you can deal with things that you don't fully understand. And I dare say that that in the process of making discoveries, you almost by definition don't understand what it is you're looking at. But uh, there's a process that, 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 that scientists have of, of understanding uh, the the properties within the framework of, of scientific thought and, and if it doesn't fit then you have to modify scientific thought and of course that's we haven't had any of those recently but I, I well I don't know if you look at at some of the the stuff that's been coming out in terms of astrophysics the the, the uh, gamma ray bursts from the edges of the, of the universe. Yes. I mean, I, there's clearly things going on that yeah. that we don't understand at all.
0: Yeah, including uh, one burst that actually heated up the ionosphere <laughs> uh, from uh, from uh, nighttime yeah. to sort of daytime conditions conditions of excitation. Absolutely, it's really amazing.
1: amazing. Yeah. yeah.
0: But when I think about it, think think back about my education, which was at uh, a pretty top-rated, you know, school system in the in the United States at the time. And I think about the, the science education that I got. It was all, um, dare I say, kind of almost mythology. In a sense, there was the scientific method, and people applied the scientific method, you know, and they got certain, you know, made certain discoveries. And it was all kind of cut and dried in a way almost it was the the sense of adventure the sense of exploration um was never well communicated in you know in the textbooks that i uh that i read or in the teachers in in uh uh elementary school certainly and and uh junior high i think uh Turned out, I had a really good chemistry teacher in in high school who who managed to to help impart some of that. But but up until then, it was it was really uh, it it was it was a very unrealistic view, uh, mm-hmm. a very stylized, idealistic mm-hmm. view, you know, of what uh, what the uh, what science was all about. Yeah, I
1: I, I had very similar experiences, and I, I must say that that the one teacher that that in high school that that uh, brought the whole process of, of scientific exploration uh research uh into in focus was my chemistry teacher now actually I didn't like chemistry very much but neither did i <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there this, this person had been a, a graduate student uh, in chemistry. And so he came in one day, he did several things. I mean, we had to write down observations of a burning candle. But one day he came into class with a, a milk carton that had something in it. I, I'm not sure whether it was a, a clothespin or a, a fountain pen or something like that. And he said, research is like trying to, to understand what's inside the milk carton. And so you know, and we did a bunch of experiments and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was good. I you know, when I got the Nobel Prize and I started uh, confronting the issue that I had to prepare a lecture for this thing, and I, I guess in some vague sense one can argue that the lecture was worth three hundred and sixty thousand dollars or something, in the, in the sense that they tell you that that that's a condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back and looked over. Uh, something like 300 pages of lab notebooks and i was amazed at how the process of scientific discovery in my own case had been simplified in my mind i mean it was it was it had been vastly more complex than that and so i decided at that moment that that i would write something which really described the chaotic nature of this process and try to explain what my motivations were for doing the things that i did and i've gone around i mean it this ended up being a great talk, and uh, I cannot imagine another talk that I could give, probably over seventy times, uh, and still be uh, have the adrenaline flowing when, when in fact I give the talk. But it has worked out very well. Uh, I was very apprehensive. There's a thing called the Nobel Laureates at Lindau. This is in uh, Lindau, Germany, which is on one end of Lake Constance, and it's held every year, but every third year it's physics. So it happens that the summer after I got the Nobel Prize, it was it was physics. And so I went to this thing. And there were people that, that you know, were, uh, I mean, uh, Mossbauer and, and uh, I don't know. If, anyway, there were a lot of scientists that, that, that I was very, uh, I regarded as, as my heroes in some sense. I, I frankly don't think I've ever accepted role models. I've done things my own way. but But these were, you know, giants, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I was very concerned because, in fact, maybe they would not like my talk. Maybe maybe they didn't feel, in fact, that, that their discoveries were chaotic at all. And so I went up there, and I, but I gave the talk, as, as I, mm-hmm. I had always done. And afterward, two of them came up. I think it was von Klitzing and, and Mossbauer, and they were grinning ear to ear. And uh, one of them said, yes, that's exactly the way it was for us, too. Now I may, it may be a leap of faith to assume that what they meant by that was the chaotic nature but I think that's that is in fact the case. Uh,
0: one thing I w- I've uh, been a, a bit surprised at since uh, I started reporting on on science mm-hmm. and scientists is is the fact that uh how few scientists are are really uh very introspective about what they do. And how they do it, and the, sort of the psychology that uh, that has driven them to uh, do what they do. Um, and it almost seems that that people, um, certainly in the physical sciences, I think, um, go uh, into it because they're interested in in their environment and in what's external to them and they're not, not very comfortable with trying to understand their own, <laughs> own motivations. So it sounds like a very interesting talk, and a very unusual mm-hmm. one, too.
1: You know, be careful about, when I say motivations, I mean, why did I do the things that I did uh, directly? For instance, why did, did uh decide to look at the, the uh, uh, electrical conductivity of mercury? There's a deeper question, which is to say, why are we interested in doing what we're doing and and, and what do we feel the value in it is? I mean, that's, that's I suppose, a much deeper question. And I suppose it's true that most scientists don't worry too much about that. They're just having too much fun doing what they're doing. (laughs) I mean, I I certainly am willing to look at at the first-order motivation, but... Second-order motivation is much much more complicated. I, I talk about this a lot with my freshman advisees and, and major advisees in general. I mean, I always tell people that they need to to uh, uh, choose a life's work that, that they feel is important uh, because at some point they're going to turn forty-five or whatever the magic age is, and then you suddenly realize that <clears throat> as as your friends and your parents uh, pass away that that you know, life is a transient thing, and, and have you, are you doing anything? Are you leaving a legacy for your children and for mankind in general? And, and uh, I think that for some people, going to the medical profession, uh, the value of what you do is instantly obvious. If you go into science, I mean, you can worry that perhaps what you're doing is... You know, one of the serves that didn't make it in the court or something like that, that, it, that looked very exciting at the time, but it, it doesn't end up having any value for mankind. And in that regard, I think that you have to adopt a statistical approach. That is to say that, that you have to do this because there's some possibility that what you will do will uh, uh, produce a dramatic benefit toward mankind, although the probability of that may be low. Or yeah. you're part of a process, or uh, you know that that yeah.
0: that is definitely beneficial. Although perhaps mm-hmm. your individual contributions might not uh, be immediately recognized, or might might only contribute to that indirectly rather than directly. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I look. I, I think the bottom line is is that that learning more about the universe in which we live can never be a bad thing, and uh, I think the more we have that you can think of that knowledge itself as being a legacy that you are leaving to mankind. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose uh, that we'll continue what we're doing, and I just hope that, that ultimately that, that uh, society will uh, find it, it a bit more interesting and, and learn a bit more about what science is all about. Well, thanks very much for talking. Well, thank you for coming. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.